You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Thank you for being here with us today. I'm Lucia Ardovini. I will be moderating this uh, afternoon session and also presenting towards the end. So please bear with my um, multitasking. <laughs> uh, so today's event is focusing on rising insecurities and popular protests in the MENA. Uh, and the idea is that we're going to cover Algeria, Iraq, Egypt, and maybe a tiny bit of Lebanon to sort of gain a comparative perspective and a comparative insight into what's going on across the region to sort of move away from the narrative that after 2011, everything that happens is uh, a direct consequence and aftermath of uh, the Arab Springs. So to do that today, we have um, uh, some very established guests. So we're going to start with Dalia Hanin, uh, who's a resident scholar at the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. Uh, and you have conducted your gender-related work for the program on civil-military relations in Arab states. So Dalia today is going to cover Algeria, and also it's, uh, if you could give us some concluding remarks about your experience of being in Lebanon during, during the protests, that would also be very interesting. And then covering Iraq, we have uh, Dr. Dylan O'Driscoll from CIPRI, was a PhD in ethnopolitics from the University of Exeter and is currently a researcher in the Governance and Society program. And his work mostly focuses on uh, inclusion and peace processes. And you've spent two years conducting research in Iraq as well? Excellent. And then I will cover Egypt and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow here at UI and I mostly focus on Islamism and political Islam after the Arab uprisings with a special look on the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. But uh, we're going to start with Dalia. Each speaker is going to have roughly 12 minutes, and then towards the end, we're also going to open the floor up uh, for discussion. So Dalia, the floor is yours. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, Lucia, for that. So I'm Dr. Dalia Ghanem. I am Algerian, but I am also a researcher who focuses on Algeria, which is my area of expertise. Um, I did my PhD on the civil war in Algeria during the 90s, and hence I, I continued working on my country. So what's going on in my country? What's going on in Algeria? Uh, so on February 22nd, 2019, uh, 19, sorry, millions, not thousands, but millions of Algerians decided to take up to the street to ask for back then uh, President Abdelaziz Bouteflika not to present he, himself for a fifth term, uh, for a fifth mandate after 20 years in power. Uh, I don't know if you have a clear image of President Bouteflika, but for uh, many Arab citizens, but especially Algerians, we have the image of this sick man who has been debilitated by a stroke that hit him uh, in 2013. So Algerians took up to the street to ask for their dignity back and to say enough to that system that has been, you know, as they keep saying, plundering the resource of the country. And everything started from there. And since then, Algerians have been taken up to the street every Friday, very peacefully, very pacifically, and very civically. As I said it earlier, it's very enlightening to see that 
and I've seen it and I witnessed it myself. When Algerians, we were taken up to the street, I was with them uh, very peacefully, two hours from Algiers in the Champs-Élysées, the yellow vests were burning, uh, literally Paris. So it is very important to keep that in mind, especially today when we see the violence happening in Iraq, uh, some in Egypt, um, also to a certain extent in Lebanon. So it is a peaceful and civic movement that has been going on for one year now. What happened since then? So President Bouteflika stepped down. Of course, he didn't do it out of goodwill. He was pushed out by the military. The military shifted their loyalty at you know, uh, a point when they made this rational calculus that it was not worthy to keep sustaining a president that has no more legitimacy in the eyes of his population. So President Bouteflika stepped down. He left. His brother, who has been seen as the man behind the scene, has been jailed. And many business tycoons who were connected to the regime or to the cycles of Bouteflika have been put in jail since then by the military leadership. Back then, it was the head uh, and chief of staff was Gaid Salah, who uh, became the strong man, if I may say, of the Algerian regime. He since then died, but what the military did is that they imposed an election on the population, and a presidential election that was cancelled twice, on April, but also on July 4, and Finally, it happened on December 12. So Algeria has since a new president, Abdelmajid Tabboun, who is in search of legitimacy because the population continue to reject this president. It continue to reject also the military hold on power. Just to say it um, very shortly, the military in Algeria are not governing the country, but they are ruling the country. And it continue to say that... They want to change in the system. Uh, so since then, uh, as I said, things have been, you know, moving slowly. Uh, of course, the next question is until when uh, things can go on like that? Until when the Hirak, which is the Arabic word for popular movement, can continue? Whether Algerians are capable to achieve more and more? That are the questions that I will be uh, answering too. But quickly, so not to, uh, to spend too much uh, time on it. Politically speaking, I would say that the military are still ruling the country. The military gave the impression that we, they withdraw from politics by returning to their barracks, but this is just an illusion. They are still behind the scene and they are, you know, the one who are pulling uh, the string. Politically speaking, we have a president, as I said, who is lacking legitimacy and who will have huge uh, and major issues in convincing the population that he is the legitimate person to be here. Economically speaking, and this is where the situation is a bit worrisome, we have a frontier state, as you may say, that is very rich in oil and gas, but we have a state that used to be, uh, in 2013, Algeria used to have the eighth biggest exchange reserve 
deserve in the world. Uh, they reached back then $194 billion. Today, because of the subsidies, because of the way that the state spent its, uh, its money, these exchange reserves dropped dramatically, and according to my research, Algeria has approximately between 11 and 13 months of imports. After that, there is a serious crisis that is coming uh, soon. Uh, to sustain its spending, the Algerian government needs a barrel at $116. And we all know that this is, uh, except if a miracle happens, but this is not going to happen. So there is a looming crisis. The official rate of unemployment is at 11%, and we have a population that is very young. Uh, so the question is, what will happen and whether Taboon, the new president, is able to take, you know, the right decision for reforms, and if reforms can happen, what kind of reforms are we talking about? Thank you. Thank you, Dalia. That's great. Uh, I think one question to that I have to keep in mind, maybe for later, is like you were talking about how these protests have been so consistent throughout the past year. But what are the clear structural changes that people want to see? Is there a clear manifesto? Is there a clear plan of how to achieve certain goals? Or is this something that is still very much happening? Because if then the economic crisis does indeed come rolling in, um, this could act as quite a big deterrence. So I would be interested to hear more about that. And we're now going to move on to Iraq with Dylan. Uh, thanks, Lucia. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the protests in Iraq and what they are about and why they're so important. Um, so I suppose a statement that I would like to make first is that I think that the current protest movement is one of the most important political developments in Iraq since 2003. Now, this is a big statement to make. Uh, I back this up by, if you look at the, the force that the protests have been met, met by, uh, over 600 people have been killed already over 20,000 people have been injured. And the reason for this is because the political system is scared of what will happen. They, they, are, they are threatened by the protest movement because it threatens their very existence. And therefore, they have met it with force. But to understand, uh, I suppose, the movement and how we got to where we are today, we need to discuss the development of this very political system. So we start with the Constitution of Iraq in 2005, so post-2003 Constitution. And this was formed in a time when uh, Sunnis were boycotting the process, when uh, Kurds were in a very strong position to negotiate some form of autonomy and some sort of a division of power that would, that would essentially create this power-sharing system. And Shias were scared of a system that could lead to another Saddam. So this is how it was formed. And, and as a result, we have a very uh, confessional-based system that is based on div dividing the power. And if we look at how the power is divided, uh, first of all, it's normally done post-election. So we form these coalitions. And what happens with these coalitions is everybody wants a division of the spoils. The spoils being power and wealth, the wealth of the country. So we have this division and we get, we get cabinets divided, portfolios divided by the various, to the various political parties. But also within each, within each cabinet, we get a division of 
every single thing. We have every party wants someone in there taking some form of the wealth of that particular cabinet. What this results in is it, it's impossible to govern. There is no common direction, and everything is divided by so many times, pulled in so many directions, that we have a system that doesn't, cannot deliver on any of its political goals. So this is the, the first kind of, I suppose, one of the, how the political system developed and how issues have stemmed from this. We had, a, we had a period of time, particularly between 2010 and 2014, where, where the Prime Minister at the time, Maliki, was trying to change the system in that he wanted to hold more power. Again, this did not work. What this resulted in was, uh, a, a, I suppose, a marginalization of many communities that were not part of his political realm, whether they Sunni or Kurd, or Shia in certain areas. Uh, it also resulted in an increase in sectarianism. So this also didn't work. And uh, I suppose one of the results of this was the rise of the Islamic State, which has many other, uh, I suppose there were many other drivers, but this is one of them. So if we look, I mean, I'm not going to talk about the Islamic State much because that's a whole other panel, but I suppose one, one thing when we mention the Islamic State is it did, it brought together the country against one common enemy, first of all. The second thing it did was it, it took away any talk of, of reform because it, how can you reform a country when you have this massive threat? So it allowed a period where these conversations were not happening, conversations of changing the political system. Um, so then when we came to the uh, election of Abadi in 2014, or, or not election, the decision that Abadi becomes prime minister, again, he came with this idea of we're going to change the system, we're going to tackle corruption. Could he do it? Of course not. How can you do it when you are behold to all these other political actors, first of all? But secondly when you have this massive threat of the Islamic State. That is, that is what the, this government focused on between 2014 and late 2017. So when we came to the 28 elections, again, we had this, there was a voter apathy where people, did not, they, people didn't go out to vote, for one, but secondly, what this resulted in, the parties connected to the militias managed to gain power. But it's the same, same system every four years that we have. Division of power, promises, we're going to tackle corruption, we're going to deliver services, you cannot deliver because you're in this political system. So these are the kind of uh, areas where the protests grew out of. So now we look at October last year when the protest movement came. So why I say this protest movement is so important is, first of all, there are no, it's not an identity-based movement. It's an issue-based movement. What do the people want? They want to end this system, but not, 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 you know, not gently or not lightly. They want radical change. And this is why, this, why the political actors are so threatened. So first of all, they want radical change. They want to end corruption. They want the delivery of services. They want employment. They want to end this identity politics. And they want to take away uh, the foreign involvement or foreign intervention, whether it's Iran or the US. But also what they want is they want, they, they want to have a say or an ability to get into the political system. And this is important when, it, when we're talking about the threats. So they were actually, were they, were they making progress? Yes, they were. First of all, we had, um, they, they forced the prime minister to resign. Uh, this is the first, the first kind of sign of progress. The second is that when the traditional political parties tried to put forward actors to become the new prime minister, uh, the president of Iraq did not put their names forward because he knew the protesters would not endorse them. So this is, again, we're starting to see some power of these protesters. But thirdly, they managed to change the election laws, which is, which is, I think, incredibly important when we're talking about the future of Iraq. However, there's still more changes need to be made. And these were being debated in the parliament when the US um, 
carried out its drone attack, which uh, killed Mohindistan Sulaimania. So now, all of a sudden, we change the political system. Instead of, instead of focusing on the protesters and what they, what they want, all of a sudden, the, the political system in Iraq was focusing on how do we deal with Iran and the US fighting on our soil. And it, just when they were starting to make progress, everything changed. Uh, so first of all, what we saw is we saw the political actors come together. They came together when they were battling because they had a common enemy. First of all, they wanted the U.S. out of Iraq or the U.S. forces. And then secondly, they managed to, uh, to I suppose, reach some form of agreement on who the next PM would be. Again, not won back by the protesters. And where did this happen? It happened in Iran, not in Iraq. So again, what the protesters were protesting against carried on in the political system. The same political elites were deciding who would be the next PM. The same political elites were, um, were doing the whole process in, a, in another country with the support of Iran, and he did, not, he did not have the support of the protests. But most importantly, he was part of the political system, twice communications minister. So they are trying to form a system where the, where the, where the traditional political actors cannot be part of it. However, who do they nominate? Somebody who is entrenched in this system. So... This leaves us to, I suppose, the final point is, what about the future? Where do we see this protest movement going? So at the moment, we're trying to come, uh, the, the PM designate is trying to come up with a cabinet. So that's the first, first step. The problem is, will he actually be able to, first of all, get a cabinet that the political parties agree on, but secondly, that the protesters agree on? But even if he does, what changes can he implement into the Iraqi political system? So... I mean, the short answer is not many. Uh, the next elections are, are coming up soon, but he also is calling for early elections. So basically, we are electing a PM whose sole role is to lead towards elections. Uh, so then, are the protest demands not going to be answered? No. One of them is because they want elections themselves. But are we going to actually affect any change with regards to corruption, lack of services, you know, unemployment, etc.? Probably not. So what he can do is deliver security for the protesters and give them a way to, to show their grievances. It now falls to the protesters, where are they going to go next? And, and that's where I would like to end is, if there are elections, how can they manage to move from the streets to the political realm? So protesters, if they, to make any change to the system, they have to be part of it. And that's where we're going to see how is Iraq going to develop from now? If we have elections, can they move this movement beyond uh, the, yeah, what they don't want to what they do want in a coordinated manner? Thank you. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, as, as for the case of Dalia, I do wish that we had more time because there are so many things that, that we could unpack here. Uh, I guess something that I would like you to follow up more um, uh, more in details after is um, the repercussions that these protests are having uh, on on the domestic level in Iraq in terms of you know sectarianism is, uh, sectarianism is constantly associated to anything that goes on uh, in Lebanon and in Iraq and generally across the region. So if you could uh, say a few words uh, about that, I think that would be very interesting. Um, uh, so I guess I will talk about Egypt now. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, a very strange setup. Uh, so the, the reason why we wanted to also include Egypt in the discussion today is because it kind of brings a different case study, a different perspective uh, to, to the two cases, the, to the two states that we just heard about. 
Egypt back in 2011 became one of the symbols of a successful revolution, if so we want to call it. We did see indeed the fall of Osni Mubarak. We did see some sort of transition taking place. Uh, but Egypt has since become uh, a manual case study for a counter-revolution and uh, an example of what happens when radical change comes on the horizon, it can be achieved, and then it's not followed through with. Um, so just to give uh, a quick background of everything that has happened since 2011 to then talk about what's happening now with the counter-revolution, um, is that 2011 and the removal of Hosni Mubarak uh, very much gave um, space, gave an opening for political space that has never, never really existed until, up until that point in Egypt. Um, that was incredibly significant because the protesters themselves back in 2011 did not think that they would achieve that as quickly as they did, but which also meant that they were incredibly unprepared to deal with the opening up of this system, which led to uh, one of the oldest uh, oppositional actors in, in, in the country, the Muslim Brotherhood, to actually take control of the transitional process with the results that, um, that we're all uh, aware of. But regardless, what is important about 2011, and is still important today, is that the people felt like, for the first time, structural change could be achieved. They could break out of the circle of, and the cycle of authoritarian military governments that they had been stuck in since the creation of the national state, essentially. The rule of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, marked the first time in Egyptian history where a president was democratically elected and not affiliated to the military establishment, which in itself was... Uh, kind of a significant achievement. However, their time in government was deeply unpopular. Uh, it alienated a significant part of the population from politics, uh, and it also deeply divided the population itself. So by 2013, when the military forces took power over the country again through a military coup d'etat, this coup d'etat, this change of power, was very much welcomed by the people. They saw it as... Egypt was returning to, to what they knew, to literally the devil we know. It's, it's a quote that has been said to me by, by a lot of people. But I still think that 2013 is incredibly significant because it very much marks the beginning of the counter-revolution. It marks uh, the moment in which all the goals of the uprisings of 2011 started being completely disregarded, and then there is this return of the deep state, there is this return of, of the military forces once again. Um, and, and we could see this, and we could see this straight away. I mean, one of the first things that was done after the, after the coup was the reinstallment of a state of emergency, for example, which was also one of the main grievances behind the uprising of 2011. Um, the brutal persecution of, of Islamists. I mean, I think we're all familiar with the Rabah and Nada massacres that happened in, in August of 2013. And, and the counter-revolution very much took authoritarianism to a different level. It's almost as if not only Egypt went back to a pre-2011 situation, but it escalated that to something that we've not really witnessed uh, before. Uh, the return of the deep state and the rise to power of, of al-Sisi has really shown how resilient authoritarianism can be. 
the way in which Al-Sisi rules is not unfamiliar to Egyptians, sadly, but again, it's, 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 it's got a whole different flavor to it in that sense. It's what I call the institutionalization of authoritarianism. Uh, so something that Sisi does very successfully and has been doing since 2014 is that he's ruling through the systematic and routine seizure of extra-constitutional powers. Uh, he has gone as far as creating an institutional body that did, has never existed before, which is called the Council for the Protection of the Nation, of which he is now the head until the day he dies. So even if he is removed from presidency from probably another general, um, we're not getting rid of him, essentially. Um, through constitutional amendments, he has now seized almost, almost complete control of the judiciary of the country, and he has also re-co-opted Al-Azhar, the religious institution, incredibly successfully into, into the state. So you see how he's putting everything in place very successfully to make sure that political space is completely seized, that any sort of opposition is um, repressed as quickly as it arises. Um, we see this also through um, the escalation of brutality and human rights abuses that are perpetrated by the military in Egypt every day. Um, I mean, not only constitutional amendments allowed for the trial of civilian in military courts, but just to give you... Uh, some very sad statistics. Uh, since Sisi came to power in, 2014, in 2014, Egypt has very quickly skyrocketed into the, third, the top 10 countries in the world for the number of death penalties that are issued and carried out every year. Um, so again, just to put this into perspective, from 2014 to mid-2019, Military courts have issued more than 2,500 dead sentences in opposition to the last decade under Mubarak's rule, which was still quite, you know, brutal, uh, during which only 530 death sentences were issued. Uh, which I think, I mean, this number kind of speaks for themselves. Uh, the complete crackdown on uh, opposition and... Um, any sort of uh, political space is also um, being carried on despite international attention to it. Uh, like the regime will not be uh, repelled in this effort. I think it was just before Christmas that Mada Masr, which is the last independent media news agency left in Egypt, their headquarters in Cairo were stormed and everyone was arrested and has since been under state control, essentially. So this is not nuanced. This is not, um, this is not happening under a limelight. I think it's very clear, and the fact that it keeps happening so openly shows how confident the regime is to an extent. But at the same time, to bring it back to today and, and, and conclude, I think that there are, we are seeing signs that maybe Sisi's uh, strongman um, image, if we want to say, is a facade. I think there are deep cracks in the regime, and there are indications that his legitimacy and his power are very quickly decreasing. Obviously, the, we saw some uprisings taking place in the fall of 2019, and we saw some protests taking place a couple of weeks ago in, in commemoration of the ninth anniversary of January 25th. What's, what's really telling about these uprisings is that they brought people together across the generational, political, and religious spectrum 
So Egyptians are reuniting once again, but also the disproportionate response that the regime had against this protest is telling us that someone is very worried about what's happening and they do not want protests to happen again. Um, something that is also very important, I think, is that Egypt has now become a reference point for both regimes and protesters across the region in terms of what to do and not to do if you want to successfully either maintain power or go through with the revolution. Something that happened in both Algeria and Sudan is that one of the hashtags that was trending was not another Egypt. So people have learned, regimes have learned as well. So I think that this, whatever happens, because people have now been pushed to their extreme by the counter-revolution, whatever happens is something that's gonna have repercussions that go beyond uh, the domestic level. And I'm gonna stop here. Hello. So, Dalia, if we go back to you with the first question that I asked, and then we can take it from there. there is there a clear manifesto? What do people want? Uh, for the Algerian case, I would say, uh, because this is the question that everybody is asking, one year of protest, of peaceful Pacific protest, What's next for Algerians? Uh, where one thing is sure, there is no social movement that can go on and on and on endlessly like that. Uh, it's impossible. Uh, so, um, uh, of course, they one can see easily that the popular movement in Algeria is not showing any signs of abating. People are really, you know, doing it regularly every Friday for the general population every Tuesday for the student population and they are still millions on the street and they are still cross, uh, you know, uh, cross socioeconomic background, cross age. And of course, as I said it earlier, Algeria is composed by 48 wilayas. This is a big country. Um, this is a country that is basically six times the superficies of France and people are still demonstrating all over the country. It is not only the capital Algiers or the big cities like Constantine and Oran, it is all over the country, which is very important. Uh, people agree on one thing, to continue to demonstrate and to continue to doing it peacefully. That is one thing that Algerians want to keep up with. Why? For several reasons, but I think the most important reason is that Algerians lived the civil war between 1991 and 2001, and they paid a hefty price for that war, in which more than 200,000 people died, 7,000 disappeared, and it costed them $20 billion of material damages. So Algerians, even the new generation that didn't witness that civil war, does don't want the, 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 the war, don't want the violence. And because also they know their regime and they know what the regime is capable of. If uh, the regime decides to use coercive measures against its people, it's going to be bloody because we are no longer talking about the military, the Algerian military of the 90s. We are talking about the second most powerful and most organized military in the region after Egypt, right? Even though you guys did a bad job in Sinai. 
So Algerians are better. Uh, so uh, more seriously, if they want to crush the population, they would do it, and it will be bloody. But of course, I don't think the Algerian military are, you know, have any intention to do so for many reasons. We can discuss that uh, later. So now, and I've been saying that for the last eight months, maybe the. I do know that Algerians do not want to institutionalize their movement. They want their movement to remain leaderless because they don't want to appoint leaders who will take the risk to be co-opted or manipulated by the regime. But force de constater, as we say in French, that their movement has to know a minimum of institutionalization. I'm not talking about one leader or two leaders. Maybe choose, you know, different personalities from different different background, uh, one from the student, one from the union, one from uh, the, the, the lawyer of the, or the judge's court, and do uh, a leadership, a common leadership. Because this leadership can decide on exactly a manifesto, in feuille de route, and then can go and discuss with the, the, uh, the leadership. And as a matter of fact, this is their strong point, but this is also their weak point, because today it's been used against them. Gayed uh, Saleh before dying and today President Boone keeps saying we want to negotiate with the movement but with whom are we going to talk? Are we going to talk with 41 millions of Algerians? This is not possible. So the movement needs to institutionalize. There is some you know uh, very good organization on local levels you know uh, Algerians are organizing for instance the, 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 the professors of university uh, came all together all over the national territory and they did these local committees in which they discuss and they debate about the constitution, whether it should be reformed or totally, you know, abandoned and another one um, uh, drafted. So there is debate, there is dialogue, there is a will to change things. But again, one needs to be very realistic about what we want and how we want it. Another thing that is totally unrealistic for me is this slogan, uh, which means they will all be removed. A state cannot go without institution. Uh, so, of course, they want radical change, and of course it is normal, but it needs to happen step by step. We cannot leave the state without any bureaucracy, any institution, any... This will lead to chaos, of course. So there is a need to institutionalize, there is a need to organize better, and there is a need also to, you know, better know... Uh, and be more realistic about what we want and how we want it. And the final point about that, and I can answer question about that point, I think what's going on in Algeria right now is a renegotiation of civil-military relationships. And we are still in this back and forth. It's like a dance. It's like a choreography. The military are giving few concessions, and the people are saying, okay, but we want more. And it's been a dance like that for the last year. But we need to reach a point where the Algerians will understand that this is what the military want. This is what they can be given to. And the military needs to understand that the time when they used to do kingmakers and bring people to the presidency and say, this is your president, and on that day you will go vote for him, is no longer possible. Thank you. Seeing as you're moderating, should I send a yeah. question your way so you can think about it whilst I talk? I mean, yes, please go ahead. Okay, I, um, so I'm really interested in... Uh, the role of the international community in maintaining the Egyptian regime, and if you could speak a little bit about this. 
uh, I would be quite interested to hear, and I'm sure everybody else would. So back to my question. Um, so you asked me about the domestic repercussions of the protests and particularly connecting to sectarianism. Um, so I think the domestic repercussions are quite big. First of all, uh, this is the first time we rarely have protests in Iraq that are, are based on so many issues and are asking for such radical change. That's the first step. The second is that we have protests that connecting across, the, across different, uh, I suppose, identities in Iraq that have maybe not connected that much before. But thirdly, it's just the nature of, of the protests where we have, um, for the first time, I mean, we, have, we had a woman mar women's marches just last week. We see women in, heavily involved. We see street art everywhere. We see, uh, despite the government's uh, brutal reaction to the protests, we see the protesters, uh, the atmosphere is, is quite uh, jovial despite all of this. And, and it, the way they are bringing people together from different, uh, different, I suppose, spectrums of the society. I mean, we, see, we have seen old women uh, in the protesters give, in the protest, uh, I suppose, area, um, supplying food to the protests. We have seen, uh, you know, children involved. We have seen, uh, so although it is a youth-led protest, particularly under 25s, I mean, it connects to many parts of the society. So I think even if the political change is not what the protesters want, society, the society is changing. And I think we have definitely seen a, a change in society over the last uh, six months in Iraq. And some of this predates the protests. You know, I think uh, in the last elections, we can see that people were tired of sectarian politics. They were tired of identity politics. And this is one, first of all, displayed by the, the lack of people coming out to vote, but also people like Abadi did quite well in Mosul. Uh, we saw, you know, all of a sudden people were not voting for the same people again and again. So I think predating the protests, we have seen this uh, People are tired of sectarian politics, and but the protests have really put this to the fore, and um, and we've seen a coming together of people that we wouldn't normally see, and we've seen society change in certain ways, uh, which will last beyond the protests. I think they will also have political changes. Uh, it remains to be seen how big they are. We'll see over the next months. First of all, when we have a new government, if we have a new government, and when there are elections. Um, I suppose another thing is that we have seen. People are protest protesting against international interference. Mm. Um, and, okay, I mean, protests against U.S. interference have, have happened in Iraq for a long time. But protests against Iranian interference is something a little newer, particularly, I mean, particularly where they're happening, in Baghdad, in Basra. You know, this is not something that we have traditionally seen in Iraq. So, again, this is a, a slight change to push away from this constant interference um, and people having people having more say in Iran over who the next prime minister is than people do on the streets in Iraq. So this is, I suppose, some of the changes that we have seen. No, and, and they're incredibly significant, I think. It's, uh, it's definitely something that it's going to gain even more traction, I think, going forward. Um, and I think I'm going to answer this and then I'm going to kind of put the same question towards you too as well, because I, I think... Um, that something that happened after 2011 is not just that regionally we learned some lesson, but also internationally we did. So I think the international coverage and international involvement in, in both Algeria and Iraq, it's something that I, I would like to touch upon briefly before we uh, open the floor for discussion. But in terms of the role of the international community in allowing the counter-revolution to 
shrink back Egyptian progress uh, as much as it did. I think the, the international community is playing a major legitimizing role uh, in terms of allowing the military regime to stay in place. Yes, there is uh, condemnation for the plain breaches of human rights that are happening every day, but at the same time, Egypt remains the second biggest receiver of U.S. military aid in the region after Israel. Uh, and because of its strategic and historical position, even in 2011, when Mubarak was removed and there were indications that the Brotherhood might win the election, the international community was far from being thrilled about this development. So I think they were still putting... Uh, international needs and international interests first, rather than actually wanting to hold people accountable for what's actually um, happening um, on the ground. But I would like to get, like, turn this back to you and see, and see what you think in the cases of Iraq and Algeria. What role is the international community playing? How is this being covered? As well, because I feel like that the media narrative today, when it comes to this um, uprising, is completely different from what it was in 2011 as well. Um, so, I mean, I suppose I'll start with the coverage element. And I mean, there is an Iraq fatigue that you, we cannot, we cannot, I mean, since 2003, we have had this focus on Iraq. And by now, when we actually have a movement that is, you know, looking for radical change, we have people coming together. Uh, I think, particularly at the beginning, there was very little in the news. And we had, uh, we had more in the news in other protests. Hong Kong was in the news constantly. Uh, Iraq was not, despite the, the amount of violence by the state against the protesters. Uh, it, it, very little at the beginning. Um, and when it did enter the news again, we, we, we had this, rather it was about Iran and the US. And this is when we started to see more coverage. So again, I think people were quite... Uh, disappointed by international mm -hmm. coverage, but also disappointed by the reaction of the UN. They see the U they, um, they were calling for the UN to do more to protect protesters. And I mean, if you can, you can see it in the street art street art in Baghdad, uh, the kind of the rhetoric about the UN. It's like you empty statements, but what are you actually doing to protect us? And this is seen um, in in many areas across Baghdad. So I suppose with regards to coverage, that that's briefly. But if we talk about the international community. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, to be blunt, the international community has been instrumental in the system carrying on. I mean, any sort of aid, whether it's military aid, humanitarian aid, or, you know, developing good governance, all of it, ha all it has done is allow the system to carry on. Uh, so it has legitimized it in some respect, but also it has funded it. It has funded corruption. It has allowed corruption to carry on, particularly if we talk about uh, during the, the, the fight against the Islamic State, because everything was focused on, you know, the fight against the Islamic State. So here we go, huge military aid to pay different militaries, whether it's the Pashmaga or it's, it's the Iraqi army. Uh, here's the money to do that. What does this money do? It feeds the system. It allows these same political actors to carry on. It allows them to stay in power and it allows them to buy support. Uh, and particularly in the Kurdish region, when we talk about the Pashmaga, when we're at this, this time where we could maybe see a revolution there, all of a sudden, uh, people who are not being paid for the last two years, they get this huge pot of money from the US. And now everything's okay again. We, we, 
the same political parties can carry on. So I think we, we have to lay some blame at the international community with that, but also with regards to what they focus on. Stability. When we talk about Iraq, we talk about stability. That's the first thing. Is Iraq stable? That's another question, maybe for another time. But the type of stability that they want, that they've invested in, has again uh, taken precedence over some political change and particularly taken precedence over supporting any grassroots movements. Um, so again, I think that when we talk about Iraq and we talk about investment, it's always security, it's always stability. And what this has done, it has prevented money being spent on, on where it's needed to develop the political system or the grassroots movements that would allow the protesters right now to, to have some sort of links across the country and to have some sort of, I suppose, uh, ability to, to enter the political system. When it comes to Algeria, I, you know, Algeria doesn't receive um, uh, the aid uh, from the U.S. like uh, Egypt. So U.S. isn't that of an important uh, partner for Algeria, neither is Algeria for the U.S., except for some cooperation, military cooperation on the Sahel, as Algeria has a very important role in Sahel, Niger, Mali, and so on and so forth when it comes to uh, uh, fight against terrorism. Uh, but what matters for uh, Algeria and for uh, the other partner is Europe. Uh, Europe is a very important uh, partner. It is actually, Europe is Algeria's largest tra trading partner. Um, and Algeria is a strategic energy trading partner uh, for the European Union. In 2017, just to give you an idea, in 2017, fuel and mining produ product made up 95% of EU imports from Algeria against 94 the year uh, before. Uh, in addition, Algeria is Europe's third largest natural gas supplier with 84% of its liquefied natural gas, LNG, sent to Europe principally to Italy, France and Spain. Uh, so uh, just for Spain, for instance, Algeria's gas export covered 55% of Spain needs. So this is a very important energy supplier. And of course, it is also on the political level, a very stable partner in the sense that Algeria has been seen uh, since the end of the civil war and because it didn't witness the Arab Spring as an island of stability, which is to a certain extent true. When you think about the region, picture the region, uh, when you close your eyes. We have Morocco that is pretty stable. We have Algeria. And then we have Tunisia that has been witnessing, you know, political difficulties and economic difficulties since 2011. We have Libya that became a hotbed for uh, uh, IS and different militias. Uh, and then we have Sudan, and then we have Egypt that uh, witnessed uh, Trump's uh, favorite dictator uh, with Sisi. So then we have just Algeria, this North African behemoth that is, you know, um, seen as an island uh, of stability. And I think Europeans learned from their mistake in Libya when they thought, oh, Libya is so far, nothing really can reach us. Well, with the NATO intervention and with the fall of al-Qaddafi in 2011 happened what happened. The intervention was poorly organized and poorly thought. Algerians said, 
by the way, to the NATO do not intervene and happen what happened. The refugee crisis, the militia, the IS in Libya, and so on and so forth. So for the Europeans, it's very important to keep stability in the country. And this is why France, at the beginning, had no interest whatsoever in a regime change or in Bouteflika even leaving. And we all remember here the, the, the famous tweet of Emmanuel Macron that was, uh, uh, you know, uh, poorly interpreted in Algiers. Yeah. Yes, uh, I remember I was back then in Algiers and Emmanuel Macron tweeted about democracy and Bouteflika and so on and so forth. And the day after, there was a big demonstration in Algiers. And the slogans were very funny because Algerians, we are well known for our humor. Uh, there was slogan saying Emmanuel Macron get the wood ready this year because there will be no Algerian gas for you. And when I asked people why, why, and they said, did you see his tweet? I mean, his tweet is offensive to us, to all what we are doing. And since then, I think the French and the Quai d'Orsay learned no more communication whatsoever. Uh, our direct neighbors as, uh, as well, the Tunisian uh, president before before dying uh, uh, Gates subsidy did not make any declaration because he knows, and even the, the newly president, that any declaration today, you will pay for it tomorrow. And because there is interest between the two countries, it's very sensitive. The Moroccans as well, the Spanish as well. So I think there is this fear of Algeria becoming another Libya, uh, which is not going to happen. But there is this also desire for European to think, you know, to think differently. But unfortunately, I think that the, 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 they didn't do anything. And I, I think for now, the best thing is, you know, this standing position, wait and see. Uh, but of course, anything, um, you know, any declaration that is made is always, you know, has always repercussion in Algiers, in, 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 in the head of Algerians. Algerians are very jealous about their territorial integrity. This comes from the war of independence and so on and so forth. So foreign meddling is very poorly seen. So anything that could be seen or perceived as foreign meddling would have uh, repercussions. Oh. No, this is, uh, I think it's fascinating. We should probably have a follow-up session just looking at uh, what the international community has learned and should learn from <laughs> everything that's happening, but uh, that's uh, probably for the future. Uh, I think we will now open the floor up for questions from the public. So we'll start by taking a few rounds of questions. When you ask a question, please be brief. Uh, and present yourself and also if the question is for a specific speaker please uh, make that clear I'm Johanna from ACT Church of Sweden um, I was wondering you mentioned a bit kind of the post-ISIS context and I was wondering for all of you because it's different and in the different how how is this affecting kind of the perception of security at the moment a lot of um human rights violations and a lot of the kind of the regimes have been uh, playing off the threat of isis uh, for a long time and where are we moving to now in regards to this 
My name is Linda. I'm working as an analyst at Concilio International. Uh, I would first like to thank you all for very interesting talks. Uh, and I have questions for uh, Dahlia and for Dylan. Uh, so my first question is if you could mention something about the Haragas, uh, Algerians who are leaving uh, irregularly, Algeria uh, in boats, often the youth, uh, disillusionized. I imagine that this will continue uh, since the same system is still in power. So if you could say something about that, please. Uh, and then for you, Dylan, um, I'm just uh, curious about the prospects for Iraq continuing to, to be a scene for uh, US-Iranian violence tensions uh, in the coming years, if you could say something about that. Uh, and also um, the prospects for uh, of the Iraqi government uh, forcing the US and foreign uh, forces out of the country after the parliament uh, decided to do so uh, some time ago. Thank you. Thank you. I think we'll start by answering these two questions that are quite loaded. And then we'll move on to some more. I, I'm just going to say very quickly something about the post-ISIS context uh, in, in terms of how that affects Egypt. Um, it still massively does. Uh, I mean, the threat of terrorism, and especially like the constructed, I should say, threat of terrorism is still being used by the Egyptian regime, regime to justify all sorts of human rights abuses, abuses of power, and jail sentences that are being carried on. Um, there is disorder in the Sinai. There are a lot of uh, porous borders and areas that are hard to control, but uh, one can't help but wonder how much this threat is actually being portrayed as bigger than it actually is for regime purposes. Um, yes, yeah, so I mean, when we're talking about post-Islamic State Iraq, we, I mean, we have to talk about post-territorial holding Islamic State Iraq because the Islamic State is, is, is live and well. Um, so, I mean, I think when we're relating it to the protests, I mean, the protests are not necessarily happening in the, in the core areas of the Islamic State, firstly. However, the issues that the protests are about remain relevant and they are many of the factors that led to the rise of the Islamic State. We have, you know, this chronic unemployment. We have uh, a large amount of youth with little hope for the future. And But also, if we look at, I suppose, the post-territorial Islamic State Iraq, we also have the lack of reconstruction, and we have large IDP camps uh, holding, well, overpopulated IDP camps, holding a lot of people that are often uh, connected in some way to Islamic State, but also the, the failed justice with regards to, I mean, we have courts where people are tried for uh, in 10 minutes. We also have uh, overpopulated prison systems. So all of these are issues that the Islamic State can still feed upon. Um, so I suppose when we're talking about connecting to the protests is, is maybe not. Connecting it to the failure of the governments is a better way to look at it. And the, the issues that the protesters are protest, protesting about because they remain relevant. For, and these are the core areas that the Islamic State has traditionally used in order to gain uh, supporters and to radicalize. Uh, we also have, I, I suppose, I mean, it's maybe a little bit off topic, but the, the kind of the youth that live through the Islamic State uh, are extremely vulnerable to radicalization. Uh, and not, not little has been done because there's all this, I mean, 
when we look at, we're, we're looking at, which connects to the next question, we're looking at this uh, US-Iran fight uh, happening on the territory. We're looking at uh, a massive protest movement. We have no government. We have a prime minister who's resigned. Are we going to get a new cabinet? But yet we still have all these issues that remain that can be held on. And when we have youth that have lived through so much violence uh, that, that um, were uh, went through the Islamic State's education system, which, I mean, if you've seen one of the school texts, is pure radicalization. Uh, so we have all these issues that remain that can be pulled upon by the Islamic State. Um, at the moment, we, we're not seeing the, the results of this, but I think unless these are addressed as well, we will have, I suppose, the growth or the regrowth of Islamic State. I don't know what number we are. Islamic State... 5.7, whatever, uh, we will have the Islamic State returning in, in, in more, in a, in, a, in a different manner, I suppose. When it comes to the Islamic State in Algeria, we never had the Islamic State in Algeria. Just to give you an idea, this is a country that fought uh, Islamic extremism in the 90s, and by the end of 1999, uh, with the advent of President Bouteflika, the war on extremism and violent extremism was over. And as a matter of fact, Algeria was pretty good at, you know, with the with the with the um, violent extremism and already CVE and. PVE, preventing violent extremism and countering violent extremism. So at the end of the 90s, President Bouteflika came with, uh, with a law on amnesty, but also rehabilitation uh, process. And um, uh, 15,000 jihadists have been rehabilitated within uh, society. Uh, so they got back in their jobs, they had allowances, and the, the, they did their, their, uh, their time in prison, but they have been rehabilitated. When the Islamic State was born, uh, they tried something in Algeria, but it was a publicity stunt more than anything. Uh, there was this group of clowns, because I need to call them clowns, uh, who tried, you know, to 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 drag um, youth with them, and they didn't succeed. But they decided to go for a, an operation, and unfortunately, they succeeded because they kidnapped French national Hervé Gourdel and they decapitated him. 15 days after that, the Algerian government de decapitated the entire uh, organization. So the Islamic State didn't really uh, exist in Algeria. Again, it was a publicity stunt. Our problem was different. It was with the remaining of an Algerian group uh, that was developed in the 90s that was called uh, the GIA, Group Islamic Armée, that turned and morphed into something all, uh, else called the GSPC, Group Fils pour la prédication et le djihad, that uh, merged in uh, uh, in 2007 with Al-Qaeda and became Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. However, this group didn't really succeed in Algeria because and I will paraphrase one of my interviewees who uh, said, uh, put it uh, that way, he said, Algerians are vaccinated against uh, jihadist violence. And I think to a certain extent that's true because uh, when you see, for instance, and I wrote a piece about it called Why Algeria is Not Exporting Jihadist, it was very enlightening to see that the Tunisian neighbor sent something like 6,000 people to IS-held territories. Algeria sent 63 uh, people to IS-held territories. So 
why it didn't export jihadis. I think because of the memory of the civil war, people were just fed up with radical Islam and they knew that this is not going to work. So they didn't find this ideology attractive anymore. I think it's also because of the security apparatuses that has been very tight on security and on protecting the borders with Tunisia and Libya. And finally, it has to do also with the religious realm. The religious realm in Algeria is very, very, very waterproof, if I may say. It is very, um, you know, tight when it comes to radical Islamists. We have approximately 17,000 mosques in the country, and all these are more or less pretty well protected. Uh, something that has been done in the country is in the 90s, for instance, during the khutbah of al-Jumu'ah, meaning the speech of Friday, imams used to just, you know, freestyle. Anyone could say anything in any mosque. Today, this doesn't happen anymore in Algeria. Today, the speech comes from the Ministry of Religious Affairs. And if you change a dot or a comma, you can go to jail for that. <laughs> so it's very clear. Uh, so imams do not, you know, mess with, with their khutbah, with the way they use to drag uh, youth in their in their. Um, in their mosque and so on and so forth. So everything is pretty well, you know, uh, tight. Uh, when it comes to uh, Linda, to your question on the Haraga, I think uh, Algeria is not really a big, big, big uh, uh, problem when it comes to those people who get in boats and 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 leave. I think Libya was the central country of departure with almost 90% of migrants, followed by Egypt, Turkey, and at least uh, at the end, Algeria. But of course, we need, we, we need to talk about that. It's an issue. Uh, I think the first weeks of the Hirak, of the popular movement in Algeria, really it is not a myth. Many say that people stopped taking this both because many had hope in okay, I don't want to leave my country. I want to change it, so I am staying. Unfortunately, I think this narrative change after a year, people are exhausted. There is a political fatigue. They are psychologically also, you know, at the end of the day, we are a human being. We get tired, taken up to the street every Friday. You know, this is your weekend. You are supposed to do uh, other things. And you go every Friday and you do it and you write your slogans and you stay the entire day there. And you have the fear also of being, you know, repressed by the security forces. So all this is taking a toll of pe on people. Of course, unfortunately, many youth left or hope to leave because they see, they still see, many still see Europe as being this El Dorado where everything can, can happen. But many also, you know, I think, and this is the majority of Algerians, see that there is hope and things can change, but it will take another generation, I guess. And yeah, the generational element is something that we keep uh, coming, coming back to. Uh, let's take some more questions, uh, if there are any. Uh, well, Egypt was, of course, the beacon of the, the Arab Spring. And when everything started rolling backwards, many people were disappointed and disillusioned. And uh, when he said that, that the whole thing was in vain, is that the conclusion today? Would you say that, that everything that happened in Egypt was in vain, actually? Or is there some kind of a memory uh, of this uh, revolution that unfolded that, that could someday be productive? 
I think we all know that it's probably one of the mistakes that was made that the Sunni army was dismantled. And, and the question is, <clears throat> I think it's, I don't know, it must be something like the 10th year that the Iraqi army is being trained. And the question is, what is happening and why is there such training? I uh, met the Iraqi ambassador in Tehran and asked him, would the Iraqi army be able to deal with ISIS? itself now, and he said yes. So I wonder, is this true? Would, would the Iraqi army be able to, to, to prevent uh, ISIS from emerging as a territorial entity? I think we'll take one more. Maria Sandström, Uppsala Universitet. Uh, so I would like to ask you, Lucia, how would you describe the status of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt today? How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, do you want to go first? Um, I'll come back to those two questions as well, which I was happy to skip because they were very difficult questions. But um, I suppose, yeah, it's difficult to ask about kicking out the US forces when you don't have a government and you don't know what government is going to come. I think it's important to highlight what happens in the Iraqi parliament doesn't mean much it doesn't mean that, they, that, that there is a consensus because, first of all, many people boycotted it. And when you, when you form a government, everything is back on the table. Um, so the Kurds would, would not allow the U.S. forces. I mean, I, I imagine that when they are negotiating for division of power, one of, one of their, I suppose, demands would be that the U.S. forces are not kicked out because they are so reliant on the, on the U.S. Uh, military aid. So I suppose come back to me with this question in maybe hopefully a week but probably a few months uh with regards to i mean the prospects for the u.s iran conflict carry on i mean i suppose i think this is again and again very difficult to answer because they are two governments that it's it, they are unpredictable in in, su in some regards with re regards to this however we have recently seen again rockets fired towards the u.s uh, embassy so uh, what kind of response we have again we, this we have to wait and see i think it's unfortunate that this is happening at this time particularly we, particularly when the protests were starting to have some sort of uh impact on the government so it's difficult to answer the question again because i, I mean yeah i i, I can't but I can say, I can just talk about the timing, which is unfortunate. With regards to the Iraqi army and the state of it, I mean, again, the Iraqi army. So the, the problem with the Iraqi army is, is there are so many armies. We have one Iraqi army, but we, but we have the Hashtag Shabi and, and so many versions within this. Uh, so many militias held it, beheld into so many different people. But we also have the Pashmaga who also fought against the Islamic State. So if we're going to answer the question of whether the, whether the Iraqi army would be able to um, fight the Islamic State now, I mean, I think when we look at Mosul particularly, I think they've learned lessons with regards to how they went about it. Um, but the militias were not that much involved in Mosul itself. So the Iraqi army has... Uh, improved a lot over the last few years. However, they were reliant on, on air support and they are still reliant on air support. So, I mean, on the ground, if we're talking about do they have the, this kind of, the, the counter-terrorism part of, of the Iraqi army has, has improved a lot, but without, uh, I suppose, strong air support, I think the battle against the Islamic State would be a long one. So, 
I don't think they're at that stage where they where if something like that came up again, they could hold um, handle it by themselves. However, I do think on the ground they have improved immensely, um, but still so reliant on air support. And this is again interesting when we're talking about the U.S. forces leaving. Uh, I mean, now we have for the first time the Iraqi army. Uh, going into areas against the Islamic State without this traditional coalition air support, and and how much longer will this take, and how much more, um, I suppose, deaths on the Iraqi side, Iraqi army side, will we have? Um, this is what what is unfolding in the coming weeks, and, and it's particularly the kind of territories where they are in, in either desert or mountainous, where there's lots of caves. It's quite difficult for the Iraqi army to 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 have a, a sustained uh, kind of, I suppose operation against the Islamic State in this area, which is one of the reasons why the Islamic State has always grown from these same areas. So starting with, with your question about was it all in vain? Is there some memory? Is there um, something to take away from what happened in 2011? I think recently we have seen that, yes, there is indeed. Uh, until last year, I don't think it was as apparent. Uh, after 2014, and, and, and when the brutality of the current military regime really started escalating, a lot of people retreated into themselves. Like alienation was real uh, in Egypt. A lot of those who led the protest themselves in 2011 didn't feel like that was going to go anywhere uh, anymore. But I think that recently the, the current renewed waves of protest are showing us that people indeed do hold within themselves the memory that structural change was almost achieved at one point, that they have the power to come together and, and to change uh, the system again. They're really fatigued. Uh, I mean, daily life in Egypt is really hard. Like People not only are, not only is political space completely absent, but people are also very much trying to survive. So there isn't that much space for political mobilization at this point. Uh, but we're seeing that people have started to go, on, to go back to the basics. So we're not talking about political party or opposition groups, but we're seeing unions popping up again, worker associations, student associations. We are scaling it back almost to the very... Uh, basic units of resistance, and and these are starting to um, uh, to appear again. And I also think that something that is really encouraging is the fact that even though the population was so divided after the Brotherhood rule in 2013, uh, they've started to come back together again. The protests in the fall of 2019 have shown that there isn't. Uh, a particular faction that is leading resistance or a particular political party or religious organization that is leading the opposition. So I think that people coming together again, is a, it's a really good sign. Uh, and also the, the diasporas. Uh, we, we were briefly talking about it earlier. Something that uh, 2013 and the Sisi regime has created is essentially new diasporas in the making across the world that are very different from the historical Egyptian diasporas, which were... Um, either mostly formed by Christian Copts or by workers, essentially. These new diasporas have an inherent political connotation. These are people who are either in forced exile or self-exile because they don't feel safe at home anymore and they want to go back. And this is leading to mobilization, to the mobilization that can't happen domestically to happen internationally. And this is also where a lot of dialogue is starting to happen between secular and religious forces, for example, which I think it's 
one of the things that was missing from 2011 and one of the reasons why 2011 wasn't successful as it could have been. So I think that there is, um, there is hope there. Uh, again, I think it's a generational matter, but, uh, but it wasn't all in vain. Um, and on uh, and on what's the status of the Brotherhood today? I'm gonna be I'm writing a book about this, so we can talk about this later. I'm gonna try and be very very brief about it. Um, so the Brotherhood today it's in deeply it's finding itself in deeply unfamiliar circumstances. Uh, the organization is obviously no stranger to repression. It has existed under illegality for most of its 90 years uh, history. But the level of brutality and state repression that it's facing after 2013 is simply unprecedented, uh, which also means that the historical tools of resistance are not valid anymore. So what has happened after 2013 and the forceful removal of um, Hamad Morsi is that... Um, State repression targeted not only the leaders of the organization, but also the members, which is, again, kind of a new element in the history of the, of the Ikhwan and has seen a lot of people fleeing the country. So the organization is now mostly existing in forced exile. Uh, and this has led to the creation of also competing guidance offices. Like you, you get um, what a lot of Brotherhood members call the PR office of the Brotherhood, which are the members who now reside in London or the UK, for example. And then you get the new guidance office, office that is split between Egypt and Istanbul. And then Istanbul and Turkey in general have also the classic leadership of the Brotherhood. So you get a lot, the organization is now split in a lot of different levels. Uh, and what I think is very interesting is that it's also split between different approaches to repression, different approaches and strategies to exit the, the current state of, of exile that they find themselves in. And one is the classic one. So it's like, we need to be patient. This is just another period of hardship. Uh, we have a mission and this is going to take care of itself. We just need to be united. Uh, while there is another part of the organization that is being very proactive about this, that is arguing that they need to create a dialogue and a cooperation with secular forces, that they need to rethink the very orthodox ideological principles on which the organization is based, who are not willing to be part of such a hierarchical movement anymore. They want internal reformations as well. So it's, I think it's a very exciting time for the Brotherhood um, and, and for political Islam in general, because I mean, obviously, I really think there is not such a thing as political Islam. We're talking about political Islams always, but the Brotherhood remains one of the oldest and most influential and organized Islamist organizations that we have in the region and where it goes is going to have an impact and other groups are going to look at it and learn from it. So I think that, again, it's too early to speculate, but the completely unfamiliar circumstances that they have to deal with now are going to, I think, drastically reshape the organization as we know it. I'm going to stop here because I could go on. Yes. Um, I'm also Johanna from ACT Church of Sweden, and I want to thank all three of you for very interesting uh, presentations and answers. My question is for you, Dylan. Um, you were saying that all aid, regardless of if it's military, humanitarian, or development of good governance, it has sort of allowed the system to carry on. Uh, so I'm curious to know if you've seen 
despite uh, this comment, any sort of examples of constructive aid? Or if not, what do you think constructive aid could look like and possible connections to the demands of the protesters? Thank you. My name is Christian, and the demographic question, is this a generation matter, or do we see people from age 15 to 70 protesting actively? Uh, my name is Mohammed Saleh, and I'm an UN expert in the Gulf region, working there for about five, six years. Uh, the, the, the point that I, I couldn't see that you have thought she did in Egypt and in Iraq, the intervention of the Gulf countries, especially Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Qatar. Uh, many things about the change of the regime in Egypt from Mursi to Sisi it was also some might be intervention from those areas. And also in Iraq, the intervention of, of the Gulf region, because they don't want first uh, Gulf War and second and third and fourth and so on. So, so. so it's not only Iran and, and USA in Iraq. There's also the Gulf region playing a role there. So I don't know if you could explain. So I... I'm not Johanna from Church of Sweden, but Anna from Church of Sweden. And I'm going back to you, Lucia, that in the beginning you said a teaser about might also hear something about Lebanon. Well, I'm going to talk about Lebanon not as an expert. I am not a Lebanese expert on Lebanon. I just happen to have married a Lebanese guy, so I have a citizenship. Uh, and I've been living there for almost a decade. But I, I, I've been living um, uh, in Lebanon also when the, the revolution happened on October 17. Uh, so what I can tell you uh, is uh, this is uh, Lebanon is in a difficult place right now. Um, just to give you concrete examples of what we are living right now. Uh, so the economic situation is so bad and uh, dire that uh, we are living in uh, a de facto uh, um, capital control. Uh, so today they, they actually froze, banks froze uh, the assets of everyone, regular citizen like, uh, like me. Uh, what is terrible about this situation is I've been hearing a lot of people saying, yeah, well, Lebanese are resilient. I don't think it's about resilience as much as it is about despair. Sorry to say it as bluntly, but I've seen people get accustomed to situations in which they shouldn't be accustomed to. Uh, when the Lebanese uh, revolution started, people were full of hope and so on and so forth, and then banks stopped working and they closed uh, their, their doors because they were afraid of what will happen. So people were angry, but they get used to it. And we would receive, you know, messages from friends saying, oh, the rumor has it that tomorrow they are opening normally. So we learned to function with it. And then schools closed. My daughter didn't go to school for 17 days. And we got accustomed to it again. And then they, uh, we heard about the capital control. And then we get used to it. And then there was, oh, now we can only withdraw $1,000 a week. 
And we were like, okay, we are still lucky. It's 1,000 a week. And today it's no longer 1,000 a week. It's 300 bucks a week. And people are getting accustomed. Every week is bringing a bad news. And people, it's not that they are resilient. It's just there is no choice. When you have school closing for 17 days, okay, even I am a dual, actually a trail citizen. I have three citizenships. And I can go back to any of these three countries. But... You come to do that, you have a family, you have a life, you have a job. So people are just being accustomed. Today it's 300 bucks and nobody is really saying anything, even though it's, it's illegal because there is nothing written that they can do that. And yet they are doing it. Today when I go to my bank, I am like, you know, I, I, I almost like beg them, can you give me my money? <laughs> it's, it's a horrible situation. So uh, the situation is terrible, despite the fact that there is a new government, the people have been refusing this new government. Uh, when it comes to the protests, I don't have the feeling uh, if I have to compare with Algeria and Lebanon. In Lebanon, it's a middle class uh, revolution. It's the middle class that is down the street. In Algeria, it was everyone. Poor, rich, middle class, people from Babelwad area, people from Le Beau Quartier d'Alger, people from Hydra, and so on and so forth. You could feel it. In Lebanon, no, you can feel it's a middle class uh, that is taking the lead, whether it will succeed or no. Uh, to be honest, and because I witnessed it, I lived it from October 17 to today, I am still puzzled by the fact that it didn't explode because every week brings its bad news and every week people are just like put on the verge. So where is that going to lead? Honestly, I have no clue. However, what I can say about this narrative of you know, sectarianism is over in Lebanon, this is the new generation, they are all united. I personally don't believe in that. I personally talk to people, I talk to my friends, and they are not ashamed to say that, one, they don't believe in this, and two, that when you push them a bit, they would tell you, oh, my leader is a red line. Do not touch to my leader. Even though they would go, take up to the street, and say, which means all means all, and we want all of you out. But when you push a little bit, you have, you know, the old reflex, they kick in. Sectarianism, it is a fact. This is what, what is reality. Uh, so uh, today, what are the options of this new government? It is lacking serious legitimacy from uh, the population. The economic situation is so bad that they are trying to get the Saudi help them, the French help them, but the French said, we don't help you because you need to do structural reforms. And the government hasn't been moving, you know, and the, the, the leadership hasn't been moving. I don't know if you followed, but... Uh, as an Algerian citizen, I was shocked because Bouteflika didn't go that far, to be honest. But their president went as far as to say on public television in a speech, what do you want? You don't want any, any, any alternative that we are giving you? Well, if it is then the case, you can leave the country. You can leave the country. So this is where we... we, we it's a deadlock, a political and economic deadlock. The leadership doesn't want to make any concession. And since October 17, 
they are still sitting in their chairs normally. The security forces escalated. I don't know if you've seen images from Lebanon, but in the latest protests, they attacked peaceful uh, protesters. So that shows that the security apparatuses are choosing their side. Uh, and on the economic situation, um, the rumor has it recently that uh, uh, we might have no longer electricity at the end of February because electricity du Liban is no longer to, 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 to pay. And maybe we will not have internet also because there is no, uh, no uh, money to pay. So this is really a situation that is very worrisome, at least for, for uh, somebody who is an outsider. But when you talk to Lebanese, I mean, I admire their positive attitude, you know, they are very positive. They are, we knew worst during the war, don't worry, we will, we will fix it. So I will end on, the, on this uh, positive note. And to answer your question about generation, in Algeria, it's, it's a demographic thing because the Algerian population is very young, you know. So of course, you will notice that young are taken, youth people are taking the lead. However, Really, it's cross-generation. We've seen even elderly people in their wheelchair coming, you know, with the Algerian flag on their shoulder. We've seen children on the, you know, on the, the, the shoulder of their parents. But what is very interesting to see, and I witnessed, you know, this, uh, this very personal anecdote that I will share with you. We were, you know, having lunch, me, my father, and my mother, and my brother, and, and I. And, and then I felt the generation clash when my brother said to my parents, this is all your fault. And the parents said, how? And he said, you just remained silent all these years. You just wanted stability and you wanted, you know, the statue quo to stay. So you kept saying yes to Bouteflika year after year, five years and then 10 years and then 15 years and you failed us. And I remember the reaction of my mother who cried and said, yes, you're right, we failed you, but you know what? Tomorrow we'll go and to walk with you and demonstrate with you to show you that we are not all done and we can change things. And when I talked to people in the demonstration, that was the feeling that they had. But we can't blame them. You know, people talked to me and they said, we were so fatigued, so tired at the end of the 90s that when Bouteflika came into power and he brought his peace uh, plan, we just said yes. And then he wanted to stay for a second term. And we said, yes, why not? But it's true that at the third term, when he had his stroke, we should have said enough is enough. But we were so jealous of our stability, Algeria becoming an island of stability, that we, that we let it happen. Oh. Dylan? Briefly, um, because of the time, I just answered the three questions. Um, constructive aid. So just first of all, I, just because I say that aid is feeding the system doesn't mean it cannot be constructive. I'd like to start at that point. Um, I mean, I suppose one of the issues is that in order to operate in Iraq, you do have to feed the system, and, and therefore you are essentially uh, providing it with means to carry on. Um, However, that doesn't mean that some of it is not constructive. And I was, when, I, when I was talking about this, I was mainly focusing on, on military aid and this so-called state-building aid. Um, however, 
when the second part of your question about aid that can, I suppose, make a difference, I, there is very little focus on kind of grassroots movements in Iraq. There's very little focus on uh, on civil society, on offering them uh, the, the money to operate how they choose to operate. So generally, when money comes to civil society in Iraq, it is first comes from a donor, then it goes to an international NGO, and then it makes its way eventually to some organization. And instead of them following what they think, what, what is needed, they follow either what they think the NGO, the international NGO needs, or they follow what, um, what they are told to. So therefore, they are not allowed to really develop as, as a civil society. And this is, I suppose, one of the big criticisms of humanitarianism generally. Um, but that's a whole other debate. Um, however, I think... I, I think Sweden is, is probably better than most at this, and I, I would say that because we're in Sweden. But I would say that if we're not in Sweden as well. Um, I think a lot of money is, is, is focused on some grassroots organizations and, and allowing people to develop over time some sort of, uh, I suppose, connection where they can spend money in a way that benefits the society. But there's not enough, and so much more is needed, particularly if we, and it, over a longer period of time. Because now, if we look at the protesters, who can they connect to? Nobody because there's so little to connect to. And, there's no, and, and if there is someone to connect to, they are not connected throughout the country. So this is where I, I would like to see aid spent uh, so that we could eventually, I suppose, have a common political goal at this kind of level. Uh, demographics, again, I suppose, not quite as, as, as multi-generational as that, but... Uh, Iraq is, you know, almost 60% of the population is under 25. So again, it's going to be mainly young people. But they're also leading it and because it's, you know, high school, universities, they are the ones uh, really leading the protests. However, people from all generations are, are joining it, uh, particularly in, in supporting the protesters. So, uh, and I think the important factor is, is, how, is how much women are involved, which, the, which was not previously the case in many protests in Iraq. Um, and then... Yeah, the Gulf states. I mean, I think when we talk about the U.S. and Iran, it's because of their, their heavy involvement right now. However, uh, there are so many countries involved. Uh, and, and, this is, and this is echoed in what the protesters are asking for, this lack of intervention in this way. For, so they, they, they see this, Iraq is littered by foreign interference rather than foreign help. And, um, and this includes many Gulf states, this includes the US, this includes Iran, and many other European countries. Great, thank you. I, I'm really conscious of time, so I think we're going to wrap this up here. Uh, but thank you all for being with us today. And thank you to both of you. Thank you for coming. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. Catch you later.